This week on Hacker in the Fed, your car may be selling up to 25 gigabytes per hour of data about you. A new malware payload vector is using DNS. What is encryptionless ransomware? And we answer listener questions about preparing yourself for a career in cybersecurity with the U.S. government, banking security, hackbacks, and many other great listener questions. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever committed. Former FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how's it going this week? Oh, man. Great. I mean, look, I'm enjoying the four-day weekend or whatever it is. Oh, yes. It's 4th of July. Happy America's birthday. Although I do have sad news, breaking news right before we started uh, the show, Hector. I'm sorry to let you know, but the 4th of July has been canceled. Joey Chestnut and the hot dog eating contest has been stopped as of this recording. No. Why? What happened? They say bad weather, uh, but, you know... Uh, hot dog Twitter is all a all a, a flicker, and they're saying that Joey may not be up for it, and so they canceled it. But they they're showing some dark clouds, so I don't know. I don't know, man. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of gloomy outside. I mean, that it sucks that we won't be able to see the hot dog contest. Like that's a major part of today. Yeah, I think they had the ladies' competition, but they canceled it right before the men started. I, that's I I consider that to be sexist, to be honest with you. I don't know if it's sexist, but it certainly is strange that they stopped <laughs> it halfway through it. So. But I, yeah. I, you know, big up, shout out to Joey. Good luck. Maybe you won. Maybe you didn't win. Maybe they're redoing it. But I got to be honest, they got to bring this inside because it is not a Fourth of July in America without someone trucking down seventy hot dogs in ten minutes. <laughs> I have to say, I mean, have you ever? You've been to one of those, right? You've seen, you've seen them just completely devour those hot dogs. I mean, I watch it every year. I've never yeah. been to one. I, I should, I should take the the train out there out to Cody Island and go see yeah. it. I've seen it, and I, let me tell you something. It's it's a hell of experience when you're seeing uh, grown people just completely swallowing these six inch hot dogs like nothing. Like it never even existed. So you went to one of the contests? Yeah, man. Shout out to Coney Island. When the cameras aren't on, are those guys puking right afterwards, or, or how does that work? Do you know? Yeah, I, I, I was so far back in the crowd, I don't remember yeah. that detail. But you can only imagine that's part of it. I mean, how are you gonna walk around with like you know? X amount of pounds of, of meat in your stomach and not, you know, either <laughs> explode well, from one way or another. You feel well, me? Hopefully so, somebody's going through old tapes of uh, the, the hot dog eating contest and have seen Sabu. We need answers. There. We need to see Sabu at the hot dog eating contest. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> eating a hot dog. Yeah, that's right. I don't, I don't know if I could eat a hot dog after watching it, although I probably will have a hot dog today. So it'll, it, yeah, sure. it's so American. What's going on in cybersecurity this week? Anything good for you? I mean, that is a great question. I, I I have to say that it is a great question. 
It is a great question. Um, <laughs> yes, there's a tons of news as always. There's always a you know a story here or an article there. Infosec Twitter is always blowing up with one drama or another. But I have to say, the stories have been kind of the same. A lot of ransomware attacks, a lot of concepts, some exploits. I saw some really cool exploit write-ups during the weekend or during the week. And I have to say, like I am, I'm big shout out to the researchers out there that are putting in all that work. But aside from that, you know, cybersecurity news have kind of been the same. You know, it's kind of been the same shit. Yeah, cybersecurity a little little slow this week. I don't know if it's the holiday. Um, I have a story a little later on that uh, talk about my kind of being pissed off at cybersecurity uh, news right now. So uh, we'll get into that. But but first up, we've covered this topic a bunch of times, but a new article just came out and it really kind of blew me away. So I wanted to talk about it. How your new car tracks you. Uh, and this article went on to say that up to, your car can collect up to 25 gigabytes of vehicle data and data about you per hour. Per hour. I mean, nice. my, my first hard drive when I went to college was two gigabytes. And I thought that was a lot. <laughs> it was. You could put all the little AOL programs and, you know, all the random, you know, pictures that you wanted back then with two gigs. But, Damn. yeah, no, I mean, look, there's... I understand from the perspective of the manufacturers why they collect so much data. I mean, you can use it for debugging purposes. You can use it for marketing and sales purposes. You can use it for improving the next iteration of vehicles as you start to identify issues and problems. But there's a consequence to collecting all that data. Eventually, someone somewhere is going to see the data. And how they're able to access the data is really a concern, right? Um, and as more vehicles are becoming more and more connected, that becomes even more of a security concern, right? Let's go through some of the crazy things that your car collects. You know, obviously your name and address and driver's license number and phone number when you purchase a car or, mm -hmm. you know, they, that thing, it's uploaded and connected somehow to your car. But your driving behavior, such as your accelerations and speed and steering mm -hmm. and braking, how hard you brake. Vehicle preferences, the things you've saved in your system, um, yeah. even images from can we talked about this before, like external views uh, from cameras mm. and cars. Insane. Trip logs, uh, fuel levels, tire pressures, battery status. <laughs> I mean, if it has some sort of data to collect, your car can collect it. Now, we're just talking in this article, it talks about, you know, the top selling cars of 2022, uh, sure. but it's all getting that way. You know, and one of the things one of the things they're talking about is is what's that data being used for? Um, they call this thing called car tapping, which is uh, for law enforcement uses that information. It can be used mm. against you. Um, let, I could see that being used. Let's say you're convicted for you know uh, killing somebody, manslaughter, you know, because a DUI or something. They're gonna sure. go back and look and see what your driving record looks like. Um, mm. They can pull the data from your car. I mean, it just takes a search warrant. You know, insurance companies are going to start charging you based on on some of this data coming out of it. Yeah, the way you drive, the way right. you're you're braking, um, you know, any collisions that you have not reported, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that that'll definitely affect your premiums next year when, yeah. when it's time to you know to renew. One thing that was icky to me about this whole thing is that the data they definitely said that the data is being sold to data brokers. Um, you know, we talk about it here. Um, you know, we do a commercial on the show with Delete Me. Delete Me is a great company to get rid of your PII offline. But, you know, sure. those same data brokers that's selling your PI are, you know, buying this information from your car company that, you know, you, you bought the car from. Like, let's say you go to a place and buy, pay cash for a car. Sure. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think that data should be go, being sent back to the car people. My, my transaction with the car people are, are done. 
but all these cars have connections. Um, either it pushes it out through your phone when you pair it to it, or these cars have their own cellular connection where the data is being pushed out to the out to the mm. manufacturer. So yeah, so, so we're basically driving around and uh, essentially data collecting, you know, rooms and uh, with four wheels on them. Yeah, people talk about you're carrying your cell phone around with you. It's a tracking device and all that, and and, and that's interesting and all. But you know, your car might even be collecting more data for you. Sure. So, and, and again, we're talking about in the U.S., you know, different laws are applied to different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, not all the listeners of Hacker and the Fed are going to be up for this. Those best-selling cars in the U.S. and the U.S. laws allow this information to be collected. But, uh, you know, the link's there. It's an interesting read. It's, it's eye-opening and a little bit scary of how much uh, information uh, you're giving away uh, <laughs> by just clicking on to uh, accept I accept all of the above changes or whatever you click on when you get into the car. So that's the thing. Have you been in a car lately? Like every time I get in my car, I drive a, I drive a Jeep. Every time I have yeah. to hit accept. And I don't even know what the hell I'm accepting. <laughs> is it like the Android uh, Auto app or whatever? Whatever it is, I don't. I'm not sure what it is, but but like <laughs> yeah. the radio won't play or the GPS system won't go until I hit accept. And I'm sure there's some sort of star next to accept that says that they can have 25 gigs per hour of data from me. Oh yeah, that's right. You're not reading the terms and conditions. Be careful with that. <laughs> every time, every time yeah. it gets me. Imagine a scenario where you're saving up your bread, saving up your cash. And you go buy a very nice, like, 2024 Suburban for you and your family or maybe for your business. And you've paying, what, eighty, ninety thousand, depending on the model, depending on, you know, you know, the options that you get added to it. And not only did you you basically, you know, paid off someone's mortgage with that, but, you know, now they're also monetizing your driving behavior. Like, that's kind of absurd. They're not even monetizing just your driving behavior. They're monetizing what music you're listening to. They're ah. taking what songs you're playing in the car, whether it's synced from your phone or coming from XM or over the radio. They're taking mm-hmm. that information and they're monetizing that. Wow. Airbag well, systems. They, they monitor airbag systems to include how much you weigh in your seat uh, and the position you're in when you're driving. Yeah, I've heard that, that car manufacturers are trying to build smarter like airbag systems, depending on your weight, depending on how you're sitting, so that in the event of a collision... They would be able to, you know, produce a certain configuration or whatever. Like I, I think that's even the thing now. But if that data is sold to somebody, a third party, then I, I think that would be that would piss me off. I mean, yeah, you're right. going to get more diet pills when you do log into Google now because your your <laughs> car is ratting on you that you put on 15 pounds over the holiday. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, that's that's tough. And I get why you know these companies may collect the information. I understand. I, what I don't like is, you know, the fact that this data may go into the hands of a data broker. We have a massive, at least in this country, so for folks that are listening from outside the country, I know you guys have different laws, but at least in this country, we have laws that feel antiquated. And, you know, we are constantly seeing compromises and hacks and data breaches every single day. Um, I don't feel comfortable with a data broker sitting on all of my personal information, including my driving habits. I don't like that. And so what is the, what's the alternative option to go and buy like a 1980s vehicle that's not connected? Well, it's the same thing. We, we tell people to get flip phones if they don't want them tracked on a smartphone. So, I mean, True. thank God you still drive a 1986 Camaro that you've had since high school. Yeah. I say high but school. Still. What were you like four years old, 1986? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> so... I don't know. Maybe that is the answer to driving an old, old car that's not connected. But they'll figure out. Yeah, a way. but but have you seen the prices on these old cars? Yeah, 
that same Camaro that I have, <laughs> at one point, you could, you could go on Craigslist, you know, 10 years ago and buy the Camaro for 500 bucks. I challenge any of you to go online and find a Camaro that's not destroyed for 500 bucks. I got a website for you where you can buy any part on any car. Should I say nice. it? Nice. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no. <laughs> so so a little inside information hector and i just did our hour-long talk of uh pre-show just talking to catch up on life and he gave me this secret website that he and his dad used for to help rebuild cars and he's like don't tell anybody about it so, so i'm teasing them a little bit there i'll never tell you well, can, hey, if the, you can send if all the questions in but you want to send money in i'll sell it to you but i i'm not uh, i won't give if, it i'll you. tell you what if they become an advertiser for some random reason yeah we'll definitely shout them out oh yeah if they want to shout out and add, add on the show that'd be great Oh yeah, no, no doubt. But yeah, and and by the way, I just just because you know, I know there's a lot of folks that are listening that that are really concerned about their privacy. I understand why companies do a lot of what they do. I get it. I I can understand it. And as someone that's that's you know been in part of startups and in building businesses, I get why you know things like data aggregation can be very important. The problem for me is always going to be well, what is that data going to be you know used for, or where is it going to go? And, you know, I understand that, you know, we kind of have that, that meme, that joke that people don't read the terms and conditions. But, you know, they lay it out for you. They tell you exactly what's going to happen. The problem with that is you can't get a product. You can't buy a car. Like, this listed all the cars, the all top 20 cars selling in, in the United States. They all collect data about us and then sell it. Like, That's terrible. You know, like, that shouldn't be, a, like, the government should be able to come in and say, hey, you should be able to turn that off if you want. And and maybe there are ways, but they certainly don't make that easy. No, definitely not. And I'm not for big government. So for me to say the government needed to step in here uh, is big. That that's very telling. That's very true. For those that don't that don't know, you know, Chris is definitely uh, a small government guy, or he's he's not that big one of a government interference. In fact, when 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 we have discussions about security. And I'll say something wild, like, well, yeah, well, maybe the government should create a, a new policy or new laws or this or that. And Chris, is, he'll be the first one to say, no, let's, let's pause. <laughs> let's slow it down. A new is law. The- oh, you know a new law is, don't you? Well, it's, it's, it's taking it's away not- someone's freedom. Someone's mm. losing some freedom. Every new law means someone's losing a freedom. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a good point, and I get that, you know. And the thing is, like, I could see why companies do this, but... Again, going back to the example I gave you, why am I going to pay 90 grand for a brand new truck just so that I can be monetized even further? And that truck is going to cost me way more, you know? And I, I, I don't agree with it. I don't want to deal with it. If you want to, if you want to collect data on uh, my driving, and so you can send me a text message that says, hey, Hector, you're driving like shit today. Okay, I'm, I'm willing to rock with that. Maybe, right? Maybe, and, 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 and I'm, I'm probably just over-exaggerating. Maybe I, I won't like that. But to sell that data to a third party, like that's, that's beyond... I'd rather drive a 1980 car. What if you could sell that data? What if they, they picked up like a car payment every like 24 months? Well, you know, you bring up a good point. Because a, a good friend of ours, he did an episode with us, Jeff Carr. He had created something similar to that where for advertisers, this was, what, was years and years ago, where you would go to like, let's say, uh, uh, you know, Hulu, a streaming service. And um, whenever they played you ads, they would actually pay you to watch the ads. Rather than them just throwing ads at you and you having to sit there for five minutes looking at an advertisement. I could see that. And you know what? At least that gives you an option, right? I feel like right now there aren't any options. You either buy the car that you want and just deal with this. 
because like you said, before you can even drive the car, you have to accept their 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 prompts in terms of condition, right? Now, depending on the vehicle, I've seen prompts where it's like, hey, just letting you know, you don't drive, you know, with your, you know, with your phone. Don't, don't drive. You, you cannot operate the vehicle with your phone enabled or something. Or you can't operate the vehicle while the phone is turned on. I forgot what vehicle I saw that in. Um, and then they, they push you to use like the Android Auto or Android whatever it's called to use for like mapping and so on, right? But still, options would be nice. It's better than having a company to sell your data and then like keep that kind of on the wraps. Yeah, on the wraps, right? They make it very hard to, to, to not be able to sell that or to not be able to turn, to turn it off and all that. So it's difficult, but we'll see what happens. Well, let me ask you something then. Yeah. Okay. So we know from the law enforcement side, theoretically, if that data exists, you know, you guys could probably subpoena that data and use it in whatever way you need to during the investigations, right? Sure. Now, what about a bad actor? What about a bad actor that has created a shadow company and they pretend to be a data broker themselves and they contact a data broker and have a partnership and agreement in place? And now they have access to your data. Very similar to like the, the, the rogue telcos we talked about a few weeks ago. That could be a thing where you have foreign agencies essentially tracking your behaviors while you're driving. That's bad, right? So Yeah, I would think that the, the car manufacturers are collecting the data and they're putting it together to kind of match it with the PII of the driver. I yeah. would say the connector between those is the VIN. Uh, so you have yeah. all the car data and you have the person who bought it. The VIN's going to cross both platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you're going to hope and when they sell that VIN isn't there, but yeah, I mean, if, if, if you could get into a data broker that had that VIN connected to those two databases or what multiple databases or whatever it is, um, yeah. you know, you could easily get a VIN for somebody. I mean, just follow them around, wait till they go in the store and then walk up to their car and take a picture of the VIN right in the windshield. <laughs> or just wait until some manufacturer comes up with a clever idea of, you know, having like, uh, <laughs> Like a, a a VIN ping or something, where you just you know you could you could send out a VIN in a broadcast packet or some some nonsense. I mean, I'm sure some of that. I mean, what what is the unique number that sends this that groups this information? When is it sends it back to the manufacturer? You know, yeah. and is it yeah. encrypted or is it clear? Like, how is that being sent? Mm. I don't know, man. I, I'm suddenly depressed. Oh, just don't be depressed. <laughs> just go hop out in the Camaro and celebrate America. There you go. America. <laughs> so now the next story you sent over, Hector, was uh, DNS TXT files records can be used by hackers to execute malware. This is a very interesting read. Um, tell me a little bit yeah. about it. Tell me what a TXT record is. Yeah, man. I'm, you know, we've, we've spoken about DNS in the past. We've had conversations about different attack paths that would require or use DNS uh, or DNS stands for Domain Name System. We've kind of broken it down what that means. Um, it's essentially it, like a yellow page is for, for yeah, domains. It's, it's and, to put domain names, you know, hackerinthefed.com to the IP mm-hmm. address. It maps them. Um, yeah. I actually met the guy, Paul Versi, the guy who invented DNS. Great guy. Wow, that's what's up. Yeah, we that used him on a case. Cool. We used him on an investigation to help us with it. And uh, went and had dinner with him and all that. And it was a fantastic what? guy. Yeah. Oh, man, we got to get him on then. That sounds yeah. cool. Yeah, well, DNS is, is is great. It has its its uses. It is a, it plays a major role in um, how the internet operates, how it works, how you're able to communicate with websites and with each other. It's a great protocol. Uh, if you go back, folks, 
you could look at uh, something like the RFC 1035. Uh, this was uh, published uh, in November of 1987. Um, and an RFC, of course, request for comments. It's kind of like a, a specification or standard that has to be accepted by various you know, organizations um, before it even goes into play. Um, and it kind of describes what DNS is. And it also describes the different options and features that DNS also provides. When you go to a website right now, let's say you go to hackerinthefed.com, which I'm not sure we have that set up yet, but let's say you go to facebook.com or google.com. What your computer is going to do is it's going to try to resolve the IP address for that domain. So it's going to send a request to your DNS server asking, hey, what is the IP address of you know, google.com? Uh, your DNS server will either look at its cache, which is basically a kind of like a data set of, uh, of IPs and domain names, um, or if the domain is new to your environment uh, or enter your DNS server, it will then reach out to other DNS servers within this hierarchy. And it keeps going all the way up a chain until it reaches like the top level domain name servers. And there's primary service, secondary service. That's, that's not the point. Now, the response you'll get back is, okay, the IP address for Google.com is 1.2.3.4, right? As an example. Now your web browser is going to make a request to 1.2.3.4 with the host um, header as the domain you're trying to reach, in this case, Google. Okay, so you got a basic idea of that. That request is called an A record, okay? Sometimes it'll be a C name. And all of those requests are being done on the back end. Now, what folks don't really know, maybe people don't know this, is that DNS is quite complex. There are a lot of different records that you can query aside from the A name and the C name. Um, for example, when you send out an email, you have the same exact process, as I just mentioned before, with the exception that now your, your clients, your mail client, and the underlying libraries are not doing a A record lookup or a C name record lookup. They're actually going to be looking up something called the MX record, which we've talked about recently as well on that topic on, um, you know, the, the biggest companies that run the most email servers. Remember that, uh, Chris? Sure. Uh, that was a great topic, by the way. And with that MX record, you'll get back uh, a host, a host name that would be the IP address or the the uh, the service that your mail client is going to connect to to either send or receive emails, right? Okay, cool. But there's also something called a text record. And a text record, you could put uh, arbitrary data in there uh, up to X amount of bytes. And in that, you could also store payloads and we're about to go into exactly what that looks like in the story here so the text records i mean they can be utilized for different things like spam prevention or like domain oh, yeah. ownership verification so like mm -hmm. if if i wanted to put a message in like hacker in the fed.com i could put it in the text record it could be like you know chris was here and that prove and i tell you well the, the message will say mm -hmm. chris is here and only the person that controls that domain could 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 change that in theory yeah and you know what? It, it works quite well. It's used for all sorts of things. Again, these are topics we covered before, like DMARC records, remember that? SPF records, DKIM. And for that recent story, in regards to the researcher, they found a way to circumvent um, the, the trademark, uh, a blue checkmark thing um, called BIMI. You know, it's very useful to store attributes and values. It's like a data store in a way. In fact, and this, this is a, a really good write-up from Cloudflare. Cloudflare did a great job on, on kind of explaining this. So what is the official format for storing data in a text record? 
1993, and this is just a, a quick quote here, the Internet Engineering Task Force, or the IETF, defined the format for storing attributes and their corresponding values within the value field of tax records. So that, imagine this, folks. Visualize. Attribute, equal sign, value. Very similar to like JSON or, or similar, right? YAML. Um, you set an attribute, you set a value, and if you're, depending on how the app or whatever app it is that you're using or develop, wants to reach out to a text record uh, 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 or, 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 yeah, wants to reach out to a DNS server and make a request for a text record for a specific, specific domain, it'll ask for the text record of the attribute and then parse the value. And that's, that's pretty cool. You could do a lot of cool things with this. But, you know, we found that malware researchers have began developing uh, a malware that are very simple in nature, okay? Um, there's at least one great article here that we post um, where they kind of go into detail as to um, a specific scenario, a specific malware strain that does exactly this. They send out a DNS query. The payload is very simple. Based off the outputs from that DNS result, so DNS query result, for the text record they're looking up, the, the malware will operate in, in a different way depending on the results. Uh, the payload will be executed on the machine and, uh, and it's, it's quite effective. Now, the one thing I'll say, Chris, is that this is not new, but it's interesting to see that people are thinking, at least from the malware's perspective, they're looking for ways to create these small agents or binaries that'll uh, not trigger EDR defenses or mechanisms uh, that are set there to kind of block this stuff. Yeah, they're all workarounds for, for basically EDRs or in the point, oh, yeah. you know, management. For, for companies that, that are, you know, deploying that, which they should be. Um, but yeah, this is interesting technique. Uh, it's a little techy, a little nerdy. We'll put the write-up on, on the, in the podcast if you want to read about it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff where how they're, they're hiding stuff in, in, you know, text files now. And we're going to continue seeing this stuff, folks, right? As, as endpoint protections uh, or systems, uh, XDRs, uh, EDRs, MDRs, right? As these these technologies become more and more complex and much more effective. You're going to see a lot of attackers and developers, malware developers, coming up with ways to simplify that initial entry or that initial access. Okay. Cat, cat uh, and mouse game. Yeah, always a cat and mouse game, forever. We are extremely happy to partner with Delete not only is Delete Me a great company to work with, their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. Hector used Delete Me long before starting the podcast because Delete Me's proven track record of removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of Delete Me convinced me to start using their services too. We talk about personally identifiable information, you know, PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Every week, there's a new breach we discuss with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are out there collecting your stolen information 24-7. Cyber criminals are using your personal identifiable information for things like opening lines of credit, making purchases on your credit card, and even stealing your tax refund. Delete Me is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. Delete.me removes private information from hundreds of data brokers. Delete.me has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by their privacy advisors. The service is really easy to use. Your welcome email gets you started and you submit your information. 
Delete Me's experts will find and remove your personal information. And the removal process starts and you will receive a detailed Delete Me report in seven days. And then Delete Me scans and deletes your information all year long. Delete Me's mission is simple, to remove customers' information from search results. As you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing your online world. Through our partnership with Delete Me, Hacker and the Fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with the code FED20. That's F-E-D-2-0. Go to joindeleteme.com slash fed and use code FED20 for 20% off. This is a great service that helps support our show. Again, joindeleteme.com slash fed and use code FED20, FED20 for 20% off all consumer plans. Hector and I are very excited to be working with Drata once again. When do you have insight into your company's compliance, security, and risk postures? If it's right before an audit, you're in the same boat as many other organizations. With Drata, G2's highest rated cloud compliance software, you'll have continuous monitoring and visibility into your risk, security controls, and audit readiness for standards like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, HIPAA, and more. Drata can streamline compliance for over 14 frameworks and even automate the custom frameworks and controls you create to meet your organization's unique security needs. With more than 75 native integrations and a risk management solution, you'll have a tool that will scale with you. Countless security professionals from companies like Norton, Lemonade, and Bamboo HR have shared how crucial it is to have Drata as their trusted compliance partner. Listeners of Hacker and the Fed get 10% off Drata and waive implementation fees. Go to drata.com slash partner slash hacker dash fed. Again, drata, D-R-A-T-A dot com slash partner slash hacker dash fed. Please support Drata. It helps Hacker and the Fed if you support our sponsors. They are a great company to work with. They are supporting our efforts to make cyber more secure. The next story, Hector, uh, this one drew my eye, and and, and this is kind of what it is. So uh, the story, I don't necessarily <laughs> need to talk about the story. It's more the headline. So yeah. the headline was encryptionless ransomware, warning mm-hmm. issued over emerging attack methodology for threat actors. And I'm yeah. like, wait a sec. I host a cybersecurity podcast. I've never <laughs> heard of encryptionless ransomware. So so let's talk about kind of ransomware and what happens. So somebody bad guy gets under your computer network or your your computer hopefully you know they're, they're from their standpoint they want to get into your network and they put in some encryption software um which means they lock up your data you can't use your data you can't use your computers you can't access your files um without this secret key and you got to pay for it sure. you know and that's been going for a while and you know people started getting smart about it you know one, one of the biggest defenses for these is to have good backups um, okay, I lost access to all my data. I backed up last night. Let's just restore the backups. Well, mm-hmm. the bad guys evolved over time. And they started not only locking up your data, but stealing your data. And then, you know, that'd be part of the ransom. All right, so you can't use your computers, but I exfiltrated the data before I locked it up, or even if I exfiltrated after it, I have the encrypt- decryption key, so I can, you know, decrypt it. And now you have to pay in order to, you know, to, to it's for me to not put it on the internet. 
you know, more ransomware. I, I'm threatening you that, you know, I'm going to expose that you've been hacked into. You know, Hector and I covered a story a little while ago about, uh, you know, an attack. Part of this uh, was that, hey, if your government finds out they're going to charge you this, we're only charging you a quarter of that. Um, and, and nobody will know. So, you know, kind of mm-hmm. there. So I was, I was like, man, this is good. This is encryptionless ransomware. This will be great for the podcast. <laughs> so I read and I read and I read. And, and all it is is hacking. It's, it's encryptionless <laughs> ransomware. Had you heard of this term? It is the first, I, I would say the first time I've probably like focused on this term right now. I, I'm sure I've, I may have seen it or heard it in passing, but this is, it's, you're right. It's just a hacking operation. I mean, it's just a hack. I stole your shit. And now you got to pay me to not expose it or get it back. But this is my big beef in cybersecurity literature and, and articles and all that. They're always trying to come up with a new term, the latest feature. We covered this where Microsoft is reinventing the names of these threat actor groups um, and coming up with new things. And, you know, now this latest term, encryptionless ransomware, like it's just a hack. I mean, they're uh, trying to confuse people with these big terms. You know, they, you know, the first it was the word cyber, then it was AI and the cloud. Uh, if I have not told enough people, you know what the cloud is? It's just somebody else's computer. That's exactly. all the cloud is. <laughs> That's exactly it, yeah. <laughs> You're just buying time or buying space on somebody else's computer. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not, you know, people about like, cloud. Oh, that's crazy. Me and my friends tried to get the word fog to, to stick in there for a while. Oh, it's the <laughs> new thing. It's better than the cloud. It's fog. It's fog. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but this, is, this is me just going off and being pissed because, you know, they've retitled this new thing, encryptionless ransomware. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, look, a uh, big shout out to my boys at Zscaler. I mean, maybe they were misquoted here or something. I have no idea. But I, I tell you, this article is interesting because... Yes, if they were to, if if the author uh, <laughs> were to look at the story the way the way you're reading it out loud right now, um, they would be like, "Well, wait, 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 we're just talking about someone getting hacked and then their files being uh, stolen, and then the attacker reaching out back to the victim saying, hey, we stole your shit. You're gonna have to pay us X amount so that we don't release it.' That's nothing new. Encryption list is is, is whatever. Um, the one thing I would say though is. It kind of makes sense why attackers may be moving in this direction. It makes sense because, you know, a lot of clients, these businesses, especially those that are heavily invested in or maybe have, maybe are even public, um, they will probably pay without having to deal with the encryption part. You feel me? Brand reputation is extremely important to a lot of these businesses. Brand reputation can either make or break your business. So if there's a story that a breach has occurred, the one thing they don't want is for someone out there to leak their files, internal or internal documents, documentation, um, or even intellectual property. The encryption I understand because it's it's so little overhead for these guys. Like you just send, you get in, you work hard and hard and hard to get somebody to click on the link or however you're going to do it, get in, and then you know you just send a program that encrypts their files. You know this encryptionless ransomware, and I hate to give it any credibility. Let's call it just hacking. It yeah. it requires a large amount of data exfiltration, and that's you know you yeah. you're trying not to set off the tripwires that you know people are seeing this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know you have some place to store it, you have to move it. Um, you know, it gives more evidence, you know, for law enforcement to figure out where it's going and how it's moving. Sure. I, I guess, you know, the, it's just the evolution of the threat actor. Um, we talk about that, that they change to times all the time. So I may understand, but I oh, yeah. still think it's harder than the, just the encryption part. You got to remember, they're using the same methodology. I think the only difference is that now they're 
they're removing that encryption portion from their from their um, from their tactics, right? It, it's it's probably gonna be the same thing. I think that, I mean, you know what? Will be the next iteration of this? Literally spamming half the internet saying, "Hey, we just ransomware you, uh, or ransomed you." Yeah, we're about to post all your your pictures and stuff. So yeah, send us a uh, hundred bucks on PayPal, right? Or or Bitcoin or whatever. I mean, that, that that would be the next iteration of laziness for something like this. And you know what's the sad part? The sad part is that folks will probably still pay. Oh, they'll get enough to pay. Not enough people will pay for it. <laughs> Sorry. So oh, yeah. just, just the threat of saying that you did it. So I don't know. So when you guys are reading about cybersecurity, like really dig in and, and figure out what it is. You know, if you're yeah. thrown off by, you know, encryptionless ransomware, you know, mm-hmm. the, I think personally they're intentionally doing this um, to, you know, rile people up and, and, and you know, it sells products. 100%. So. Definitely do your research, folks. You can see a cool story. Just read into it. Hey, if you're confused about something, send us an email, right? We have the nice contact email. Um, always reach out to us. At questions at hackerinthefed.com. Um, and we'll gladly go through a story with you or, or on air. The reality is, and, and Chris, you and I, we've, we talk about this all the time. The cybersecurity industry or the security industry or information security industry or whatever you want to call it now is quite broad. There's some good to it. There's a lot of good to it. But then there's some bad. You know, the marketing side of things, right? There's a lot of gimmicky marketing and uh, the media plays a role in that. Not, not, to, not to shit on the media today, but you, you, so a lot of places have um, these like tech journalists and reporters that really don't understand the tech. And so they'll interface with a salesperson at a security company and they'll kind of ingest what they're saying and put a story together. Um, and we've seen this all the time. At least I do. And my concern with stuff like that is, yeah, cool, you got some promotion for your, for your business. Uh, big shout out to you. But, you know, it kind of hurts the overall security posture. Everyone listening or reading when what they're reading versus what's reality uh, do not align. There was a problem, Chris, when the concept of zero trust was being promoted. Okay. At least in the beginning. And people were like, wow, zero trust. What is that? Then you had security experts in the industry talking about or having a debate on zero trust versus least trust or least trust, sorry. And what are the differences? And what about implementation? And are there any zero trust products that actually exist yet? Um, is there a way to, to include zero trust in the Active Directory environment? Can we handle zero trust from uh, authentication? Who sets the access controls? But, right, and these are all great, really great technical terms and, and great discussions to have. The reality is, is that the term zero trust became such a gimmick for a minute. Uh, I'm glad that there are companies now like producing really cool products. Cloudflare has some good stuff and uh, Zscaler and all that. But uh, for a while, zero trust kind of became like the cloud. Remember how the cloud became so gimmicky for a minute? Sure. Yeah. So I think the, the, one, the one point I would say for, for everybody listening, um, and it's not specific to like journalists, but anybody listening, if something comes out on a story or a new topic on a new topic of the day uh if it's not zero trust it's something else look into it you know hit us up i would love to have a conversation about zero trust i'd love to have a conversation about what cloud really means or you know any of these new technologies because i myself am someone that's always i'm research focused i'm 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 front facing when it comes to research and new ideas the one thing i don't want us to get into and i'm sure if you ask i don't know 10 random security uh specialists or, or experts or practitioners on twitter um, they'll tell you, you know, one of one of two things: the security industry is improving, or the security industry has stagnated. 
and there's a lack of innovation. You bring up a good point in there, Hector, that our audience can list, reach out to us whenever they want at questions mm -hmm. at hackerinthefed.com. Love their questions. So let's go through a couple of questions. We have Trey. Trey is a former detective uh, from an Australian law enforcement agency, and Trey wants to hear more stories about how I conducted my cyber investigations and tips and tricks um, to the extent that, you know, the information can be publicly released, of course. So Trey tells us that his current role is not cyber-based, but he's considered making a move specifically considering threat intel and incident response um, as he feels it's the best fit for his experience. And so he wants some tips into that space. Um, and cyber is his real passion and hobby, um, and he largely self-taught, which is great for you guys. Uh, and spent a fair amount of time, you know, teaching himself and, and recent bug bounty programs for some real work experience. So he ends with a great podcast team. Uh, I listen to a lot, and yours is one of my favorite. Well, thanks for listening, Trey, and thanks for loving the show. So I've been racking my brain for tips and tricks. Um, you know, so there is a huge difference in cyber investigations between law enforcement and post law enforcement or outside law enforcement. One of the biggest tools that you're going to have in law enforcement is um, subpoenas and search warrants. Um, that kind of lifts the veil on a lot of stuff. So, you know, you collect your pieces of information. You know, most cyber crime starts with, you know, an IP address um, and, uh, and money, some sort of money transfer, a bank account, uh, cryptocurrency. And you start collecting your information and building out your, your web from there and, and your endpoints where everything connects. Um, I think I've said it uh, numerous times in other podcasts, you know, when I arrested Ross Albrick for Silk Road, you know, I took one of those big pieces of white paper that you'd see in the movies and started drawing things and connecting them with red lines and, and had all that information. You know, it, it really is just connecting the dots and finding those connections um, and putting as many of them as possible together. So, you know, I, I'd love to tell you that it's some great, you know, trick to doing all that but it's it's collecting information and finding the big picture it's very old school plus technology plus the opportunity to, to uh, the capability of doing subpoenas right um you know when i when i think of chris you know it's funny there was a point where i looked at chris and the way the way um you know when i first met him especially i thought he was gonna he's gonna pull out like a perry mason you know fedora hat and fucking <laughs> you know what i mean and a little notepad and pen you know because that's 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 kind of what I, that was my takeaway. They, the, you know, at least from Chris's side, I saw that yeah, he 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 kind of went step by step and figured out it. They they figured out a lot of things without without you know without just someone just telling them. And I, I find that fascinating. I always found the the job of like an investigator, detective, to be fascinating. How they would kind of track things. And you know, by the way, Chris, what you mentioned there about taking that big piece of paper with a you know red marker and a black marker and kind of drawing lines and connecting dots or whatever. That's something that, and, and, and sorry to hijack this question, but, but that's something that I'm starting to see more and more in the cybersecurity industry. Visualization is huge. And any company or any researcher that includes visualization to connect those dots makes a, a, an amazing impact almost every single time. What you don't, see being too effective is when you see big blocks of text. Um, and I'm sure from your perspective as well, the visualization really helped you kind of connect things, I'm sure. It's the only way I can step back from like the 10,000 foot view and see everything. How are these mm. connected? 
Um, you know, and if I can't find a connection there, let's try to find something that, that, that puts these things, um, to add up, you know, whether yeah. it's some sort of jabber server somewhere or some sort of, you know, instructions on how to connect to an onion router or whatever part of the investigation was, you know, some of the cases are easy. One of the guys in Lulsec was easy to find, um, because he used his personal email address. Uh, we got a search warrant for his hotmail account and he puts his name and address and all the shipping instructions and all crime pictures of him committing crimes, uh, in that email account. <laughs> so that's an easy one. It um, wasn't me. It wasn't you, but, but <laughs> you know, some, uh, some other one, um, yeah. you know, but some other guys are much harder to find. Some are impossible to find. Some re- guys have really good OPSEC. So, you know, uh, this, there's no real trick to it, Trey. I wish there was, um, you know, you have to be able to like put a puzzle together is really the, you know, you have to have that mindset of how to do that. So good luck with you guys, you Trey, um, you know, definitely get into cybersecurity. You know, I, I, you know, if you're a former detective, um, it sounds like, you know, you, you'd had a great career in putting together the pieces of the puzzle. So, you know, cyber is just the same thing. Just start, you know, putting your little pieces together and, and build the big picture so everyone can see it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Trey, for that great question. And uh, the one thing I will ask of you, Trey, is when you hear this response, I would love to hear um, your perspective from from the Australian law enforcement side. Um, are there any things different that you guys do in your end than than Chris would do here, for example? Well, um, the toilet flushes backwards. <laughs> yeah, and then you have to get the occasional fist fight with a with a kangaroo. But aside from yeah. that, well, Christmas is in summer. It's really it's very strange. <laughs> but I, I have a stupid question. Right, my stupid question is this. The way that Chris and the FBI, Chris with the FBI had um, subpoena power, I'm, I'm assuming they have something similar in Australia, right? I, w- I would love to hear about that. If there's any differences or is the same, that, just out of curiosity. Yeah, so write in, Trey. Follow up with Hector uh, on some of that stuff. Now, I will say, you know, like it depends on sort of the technology infrastructure. Um, mm. You know, if if they don't have, you know, Australian Facebook or Australian email accounts, you know, and have to yeah. rely on the MLAT process, uh, that's a, mm. a mutual legal assistance treaty with the United States. You know, they yeah. have to do their legal process, send it over to DOJ. DOJ then has to serve it, and it just takes a lot longer to get those pieces back. So, oh, okay, uh, but, I got you. But Trey, yeah. let us know. Let us know how, uh, you know, how it is over there, you know, you know, with subpoenas and search warrants and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, I would love to hear the answer. Thank you. So uh, Liza from Guam writes us. Um, this is more of a statement, but I think we can work off that, Liza. Um, we should take stronger initiatives in starting to teach cybersecurity and computer science at the high school level in the U.S. Yes. Um, I completely agree with that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Python should be a foreign language that you're allowed to take. Mm-hmm. Um, I see the I see the benefits of like wh- where I live. Uh, my kids have to take three years of a language or two years of one language and two years of another. Mm-hmm. Um, I see the benefits of a foreign language. I don't necessarily think that you know like Python should be the only one. Maybe maybe two years of a language and then two years of a programming language. Sure. But but I'm all for that, you know. But my son went to private school, and he did. He had a great opportunities to take programming and computer science and AP computer science, and, and he loved those classes. Um, but, I, you know, I don't think a lot of high schools have that same availability. So um, I, I am a big proponent of that. You know, Hector is always a big proponent of teaching kids young cybersecurity uh, stuff. Absolutely. You know, and I, I totally agree. Big shout out to Liza over there from Guam. I'm super happy that you reached out to us. I, I did see your other part of the message. Uh, she says, and Hector, we have something in common. We're both from U.S. territories. 
big shout out to you. Um, you know, she's uh, she's from Guam. Uh, I I was raised in Puerto Rico. Big shout out to you. She mentioned that uh, China is kicking Guam's ass in cybersecurity. Are you aware of what's going on there? Absolutely, yeah. The Pacific is very interesting to uh, a country like China, and it would only make sense for them to to start poking and prodding uh, around security and infrastructure out there. And and we could we could we could guesstimate as to why, right? We could say, well, worst case scenario, what if there's a world war? What if you know X happens or Y happens or Whatever, right? The reality is, and it could also be defensive interest. You know, it could be that maybe, maybe China believes that Guam is going to be a staging point. You know, or uh, against Chinese assets in the Pacific. Whatever. Okay. the The reality is, is that it is it is kind of ripe for targeting, and we've seen a lot of stories of of you know operations targeting China, targeting other places, especially in the Caribbean. Like Puerto Rico itself, and uh, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, Saint Thomas, etc. This is a very real threat. Uh, I do have concerns, and I, I would love to hear more from Liza about where or what kind of security companies are out there. What kind of education is taking place? Who's managing the cybersecurity out there? Is CISA engaged over there? Like, I have a lot of questions. And if there's anything that I could do to help, please let us know. Um, for anything sure. legal you can do. Oh, legal. Yeah, absolutely yes, legal. Absolutely. There's a, if, if, if you want me to put together a curriculum and we want to do a class, fine. But I, I do believe that Guam is definitely very important and we need to make sure their security is as, as, as tight and policies are enforced over there as they are here. She asked on one last line. question in her email. She says, uh, are you still doing merchandise sales? Uh, good news on that. I've got all the protocol, the, the prototypes done. Um, we're going to have T-shirts, hats, and hooded sweatshirts. Um, mm-hmm. I hope to have the site up and going by the end of next week. So uh, next podcast, we hopefully have good news that everyone can log in and get their hacker in the Fed merchandise. So that would be fantastic. Big shout out to that. I know I know that uh, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait for my hat, my hoodie. They're so. coming, I promise. Oh, I promise. yeah. They look good. Wait. I've seen them. I've seen them. You're going to love them. Really? Oh, yeah. Nice. I've seen them, so. Travis, who's a sophomore at Grand Canyon University and studying cybersecurity, asked, what suggestions do you have for me desiring a career in cybersecurity for a government contractor or government agency? Um, So the biggest thing I can tell you, Travis, is keep yourself clean. Don't have any blemishes on your record. So most likely, if you want to work for a government agency and or a contractor, you're going to get a security clearance. That means they're going to go back all the way to you were 18 years old, and they are going to find out everything you've ever done, including talking to your neighbors, talking to your parents, talk to anyone that's lived near you, go to visit your high school, visit your college, find out if you've been in trouble at all. And I will say that as the, if they do that and they find any sort of blemish, they're just going to move on to the next person um, because it's, it's, you know, so many people competing for those spots and, and want those spots that, you know, your security clearance is the most important thing you have. And I just learned that a, a top secret clearance is going for about 175000 That's what it costs a company on the outside. Um, so if you can get that and maintain it, that's a really valuable thing to have in your pocket. That might be an SCI. That might be a compartmentalized, which is a little higher than it's different compartments within top secret clearances. So, you know, you know, it's it's a great thing to have if you can keep and maintain. Um, but that's my biggest thing for you, Travis, is, you know, keep your record clean, um, stay clean, do a polygraph. They're going to do a polygraph on you and they're going to want you to, you know, um, you know, have a good record. So keep your keep your nose clean. And I'm sure you are. 
but that's a, that's the biggest advice. And then what about skill set? Uh, entry level into a government agency, Hector, what do you think some of the good skill sets that Travis should have coming out, out of college? Well, I think one of the things that Travis should do is look at the contracts the government puts out. They put out contracts. Yeah, so, I mean, you can go to, like, the General Services Administration. You have SAM.gov. Like, there's, there's a whole bunch of different sites you could go to look at government contracts. GSA, the General Services Administration. You have the Federal uh, Procurement uh, Data System. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of different places you can find these contracts that are put out by the U.S. government. I would recommend, and I looked at this before because I, I kind of had the same question until I realized I probably won't ever get a security clearance. Um, you know, I started looking at contracts and looking at the requirements and some of this stuff, Travis, is so entry level that I wouldn't doubt. And well, I, I have a, I have a pros and cons here before I say what I'm about to say or after I say what I say, that if you were to develop your own business, let's say in IT, and you would apply to these or apply for these contracts, there's a chance that they may accept you as the bidding winner or the bid winner. And you may win the contract and may be able to do the job. It's least likely or less likely because you have no, um, you probably, you know, your business is new. Uh, you probably have no uh, prior relationship with the government. You may need some sort of security clearance anyway. Some contracts I've seen did not require clearances. They were, you know, as simple as setting up a bunch of desktops. Or there's even like procurement contracts where your entire job, the entire job itself is to just go out and buy licenses and transfer the licenses back to that agency. That's how simple it is, at least on paper, until you start applying and realizing, yeah, there's extra steps and there's competition. You're not the only person looking at these contracts. There's a ton of other companies that may, you know, beat you out. Now, in that, in, uh, to deal with that, one of the ideas you may want to look at is joining a federal contractor or joining a company that's already doing federal contracts and they already have a track record that allow you to, that's just going to allow you to build your experience, um, especially if you come in, you know, and you work with the CEO, you work with management team and say, look, in the future, I might want to go this route. Um, I would love to know the process, maybe an internship. Okay. I mean, it seems like you're interested in government contract work and a, a big kudos to because I think, I think we need more contractors um, rather than, you know, relying on the top five that we always see in the news. Right. Um but that's, that's one route I would go just because I've done the research already and I looked at what that process should look like. Now, in terms of skill set, it really depends on the contract that you're going after. I just gave you an example. I remember looking at a contract where um, there was an agency in, in a state, in a city, and they needed, you know, X amount of licenses of like Microsoft Windows. And I, I, I you know, Chris, this was such a, a kind of a a mind bender for me because I was like, why, why isn't someone at that agency just calling Microsoft and asking for licenses? Well, apparently there's a, there's a process. And, you know, I guess in some cases, these agencies would rather bring in a federal contractor in case, in this case, you, um, to come in, interface with Microsoft, negotiate whatever deals you can. And for your time, you get paid, you know, and then you would transfer the license back to the agency and then the agency would be happy. Right. I, I, I don't know what, why that contract that I saw was even a thing, but, if that's what you're aiming for, you'll find plenty of those. Now, if you want to do cybersecurity, I think the competition will be really insane because you have these massive companies that their entire business model is doing security work for the government. Okay, um, So it really depends on what kind of contracts you're, you're aiming for and uh, 
you know, and depending on if, if you want to do security, then obviously you need to get your skills set up in cybersecurity. Um, you need to be able to understand vulnerability management and uh, you need to be able to understand what a pen test is and what are the differences between a vulnerability scan, a pen test, red team, et cetera. You need to understand policies, frameworks. Um, you need to be able to understand what the MITRE framework is, for example, or what MITRE even is in the first place. You need to have a basic understanding and concepts of cybersecurity or security concepts um, in general, going all the way down to networking and even, uh, even being able to explain what a three-way handshake is, right? Once you have all of that under your belt, I think you're in a good position to start applying. And just cross your fingers. You may get a contract, you may not. No, I think that's great advice. I think, Travis, you know, Hector is dead on on uh, you're a sophomore. That means you got two, maybe three years before you're out in the workforce. Study the landscape. At least take the next year and understand the landscape that you're getting into. Um, you know, if I was going to, like, go out and buy real estate somewhere, I wanted to buy a house, I wanted to move, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to, for a year, I'm going to monitor all the places that come up for sale, understanding, you know, how much people are paying for a house, what sort of houses are on the market, what it's looking mm -hmm. like understand what's going on out there before you get into it to just start you know shotgun approach with applications you know that's that's crazy look and see what those the you know those the job postings while you're still in school what what are they demanding and you can get yeah. some of those skills before you even graduate so that's great that's advice right. hector oh yeah so jonas uh reached out to us and he asked a question that's been asked before but we'll do it again um how do you think AI and quantum computers will affect cybersecurity industry? And will there be jobs for humans in the future and for how long? Mm -hmm. I think there'll be jobs. What do you think, Hector? Yeah, I mean, uh, and thank you, Johannes, for the question. I think it's a great question. I think that, yes, there will be jobs for sure. I don't think there will ever be a point, maybe in a distant future, where jobs could be automated from A to Z. I don't think we're there. And I don't think that the human element is going to allow that to happen. There's always going to be someone somewhere pressing a button or rubber stamping something. <laughs> Let me ask you that. Do, do you think people that worked at like the counter at McDonald's or in a grocery store thought that they would lose their job to some sort of automated approach? Absolutely. And you oh, know, really? once, yeah. You think 20 when, years when, ago they thought a computer would replace them? I, I would absolutely think so. Because even when All they right. started, like, they started adding kiosks. Remember, the, I think some Microsoft have the kiosks, others don't. You know, I guarantee there was at least one cashier that said, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> that kiosk is going to replace me, like, in two weeks. The reality is that once you start introducing new technologies like a kiosk, and I've used them in McDonald's, they're very nice. Now you're starting to introduce new problems. And this is going to still need a require and require a human to debug that issue or fix the problem if there is one but not do the job that that computer is doing. I mean, to be honest with you, sometimes I like the kiosk better. It gives me choices that I have no idea you can even choose from. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that the kiosk is very cool. But then here's a the problem. What if the kiosk malfunctions? There's so many McDonald's on the planet. You cannot assume that McDonald's is going to have on staff or even subcontracted engineers to be able to service all those kiosks 24-7. Now, assuming there's power outages, assuming there's something else going on, um, you know, can those kiosks handle that kind of, uh, those kind of elements? The answer is no. And then you have another problem, right? Let's, let's go beyond the cashier. Let's talk about the cooks. Yeah, I'm sure that, you know, with, with enough technology and time, you could probably create a mechanism or system in place that'll be able to cook the most perfect cheeseburger every single time for thousands of customers a day. But you're going to run into the same problems. Someone still has to maintain those machines. Someone has to debug the machines once they go offline. 
Now, imagine a scenario for the next 20 years, we have these automated machines um, that will handle the order, right, and handle the cooking. And then you have an entire next generation of people that don't know how to count money and don't know how to cook a burger. Now, what happens when those systems go offline? What if those systems get ransomware? Imagine the chaos when someone goes to McDonald's and there's employees there that don't know how to make a burger and, and handle the cash register. Now, that's going to be crazy. And I, I think that any corporation that tries to go that route is going to find himself uh, a very, in a very difficult situation at some point. Yeah, but going back to his question and looking really at it, I see yeah. a recent or almost the next couple of years college grad who enters cybersecurity industry having probably an entire career before they had to worry about, you know, AI or quantum computers, be, you know, they'll have to evolve with cybersecurity. But if you're graduating the next couple of years into cybersecurity, you're going to have an entire career before you were ever replaced. And part of the question too is, do you think, uh, how do you think AI will affect the cybersecurity industry or CSEC industry? Um, I think that AI is, is going to improve it for sure. AI is going to help us identify patterns. Um, it's going to help us identify uh, certain areas that we've, we may have completely ignored or we're not doing well. Um, I consider AI as a tool rather than a replacement. I think it'll do great. As for quantum computers, I, I don't think we're there yet. We're not there yet at all. You know, maybe Google has a, a quantum system, you know, the computer they're working on. I think that's saw an article recently where it says that Google's making big strides in that front. Yeah, I know the NSA Google, probably has some. China, yeah. NSA, the, the big players. Yeah. It, is that going to have an effect in cybersecurity industry? Well, it depends. It depends on what they're building, building those systems for. And we have no idea. I, I know the big, uh, the big concern, uh, Chris, was that the moment someone actually is able to build a working prototype, working model, the first thing they're going to do is start cracking Bitcoin wallets. <laughs> and if that happens, then, yeah, you're going to see a bunch of people piss the hell off. Probably, probably. I think so. So, but we'll be able to track it down to the three or four people that have a, a working quantum computer. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the, the suspect list is very short when it comes to that. So, Chanda wrote to us uh, first and foremost, I love your podcast. Well, thank you so much. Uh, the insight I gained from listening is critical to my success as a, a brand new InfoSec engineer and threat hunter. Well, welcome to the club. Welcome to cybersecurity. I'm glad you joined us. Cheers. Chanda wrote in, that wanting to know about Microsoft Power Automate, which was formerly known as Microsoft Flow. Um, it seems to be like a, a, an automation capable that it has multiple end users with licenses on uh, Office 365, and the tool can automatically forward emails uh, from a currently logged in user's email inbox to external email address, um, configured to be run from the cloud, and runs completely silent. People don't even know. Um, so she, it's, a, it's, an, it's more of an admin tool. I would think. Um, and she wants to know, um, why is there, why does Microsoft make an admin tool that could be used for very nefarious reasons? Um, and is worried that she's missing something, you know, maybe new to InfoSec and a little, you know, worried about this. Um, Hector, we've been ta talking about this for years now. Um, why is Microsoft telling a tool that's very good to be used for an admin, very powerful, um, but has so many glaring security flaws? She wants to know, what am I missing? But yeah, no, Chad, that was a great question. I, I, I like it because it, it allows me to sit down and think. And, you know, as, as someone that does red team work, it's always good to kind of look at the attack flow and attack paths and look at possible ways to maintain persistence, um, possible ways that you can kind of live off the land. And I'm sure you guys noticed a lot of the articles we've discussed in regards to 
organizations being compromised or breached, and there's maybe some persistence going on. What you guys are starting to notice is that it's a lot of living off the land. It is a thing. And so it's easier for an attacker to break into an organization, get access to a certain resource, and then use that resource and its features to maintain access and or obviously persist, but also be able to continue and further their attacks. It's a thing. Now, the argument is, well, Power Automate or Microsoft Automate uh, is extremely powerful. There's a lot you can do. There's a lot you can automate. Isn't that a security issue? Well, you know, to be honest with you, depending on a couple of factors, is either a very useful administrative tool or, you know, it could be used as a front door. So let's, let's look at, you know, what it offers. It offers the capability to create a workflow or actionable flow of events. If there were no logging on this, if there was no capability of logging and things were happening in the background without events being generated, um, that would be problematic. But like every other, uh, 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 not every other, but most of the other features that Microsoft offers, uh, there are audit logs, and that creates an audit trail, which goes up to a SIM. Well, it should be connected to a SIM. And from there, your SOC analyst or your SOC provider, if you have an uh, MSSP that's helping you out with, with your security, um, or MSP, or you have you know uh, some sort of vendor in the middle, right? Uh, they would see these events. And there's a lot of like SaaS-based security products that look at logs as well that can help you identify uh, potential attack patterns. So I completely understand your concern. And you know what I would tell you? I would tell you this. As someone that's new into InfoSec as an engineer, what would be a great research project for you is to sit down and come up with a um, you know, Power Automate attack flow, right? Create a proof of concept, what that looks like, and then even do a research study or a research blog post on it. Um, I think it'll, it'll benefit you. It'll benefit your organization and also the community, right? Um, there's a lot of great things that Microsoft does. There's a lot of great tools that they release that can be used indeed during an, uh, an attack path or engagement. So um, I'm glad you're thinking about this. And aside from that research project idea, you know what you should also do is look to see who's managing those logs, where those logs are going to. And if you do a proof of concept with the permission of your business, you know, engage and see if those logs pop up somewhere and see if your stock analyst can pick it up. It'll be a nice little fun internal project. Something to think about. It's excellent advice, you know, doing a little research project, especially new to the organization. But yes, get permission before you do it. Yep. So Hector, Christoph in Germany, he loves our podcast, um, but he hey. thought our coverage last week of the hackback was lacking a little bit. And yeah. so Hector and I went through your points, Christoph, and we kind of think we made every single one of your points you made, but we'll discuss it again here. Um, yeah. You know, that, that you know, he wrote that uh, attribution of hacks is always difficult. Um, how do you make sure you hack back against the actual yeah. aggressor? That That's a great point, you know. He, he, I, I don't think at any point we we prescribed hackbacks. I, I'm very anti-hackback. Um, yeah. Hector, I, I, I'll let you put in your own words how you feel about it. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm anti-hackback as well. You know, I was trying to, at least in my case, trying to come up with scenarios. I remember I, I was kind of talking about like the tier one ISP perspective. You know, what 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 are they capable of and how can how, how, how would they engage a hackback scenario? What if the government provides the capability, uh, the tool, the mechanism? to do a hackback. Like, how would that look like? You know, the reality is, is, you know, the things that, one of the things that we talk about a lot 
especially when we talk about like you know tracking folks down and and where the hack come from or came from, attribution is always one of those words we kind of throw out there immediately. In fact, our our whole conversation with Jeffrey Carr in that one episode really talked about attribution and how it's not really it's not so easy to do in this current landscape. Okay, I I totally agree. You know, if a hackback were to take place, how would the agency right? How would the um, the person sitting behind the desk know that they're hacking the right person. You know, what if they're they're rehacking uh, another victim? I mean, I, I can imagine the the legal consequences of all of that being insane. Yeah. Or what if you're wrong? What if you're you're yeah. going into your competitor and they had nothing to do with it? Now you know you're just furthering the hack down the chain, and that person goes and hacks the wrong person. And yeah. He just goes forward, you know, or you're hacking into a corporation because of one employee that did something nefarious that the company had nothing to to do with. You know, exactly it's, right. Uh, it's you know, and, and Christoph brings up uh, collateral damage. Um, mm. that, that makes me think about um, you know one of Hector's nemesis back in the day, or sorry, not even Hector, but Sabu's nemesis was a guy yeah. named Jester or the Jester. Oh yeah. Um, and you know he supposedly was doing quote unquote hacking for good, which is mm-hmm. sort of like a hack back. Um, he would hack into like jihadists or you know extremist websites and and take them offline and go after them. But he, yeah. in doing so, he would knock over the entire server. And so, mm. you know, hundreds of other websites that were lived on that same server also got knocked offline. You know, is that worth it? No, it's a freaking crime. Um, you know, it's, you know, even a, a DDoS or, you know, uh, that it, it's, it's, there is definitely collateral damage. You're going to be, have a real problem not having collateral damage sure. as you do a hackback. So, an- Christoph, another good reason not to do it. His third point. Why don't you get into that? We talked about it a little before the show, and I think he makes a, a really good point here. Yeah, no, this is this is one of the greatest points, and I really hope that well, – I'm really glad that he brought it up, and I wish we kind of would have brought this up as well uh, when we were kind of discussing that topic. But here's what he says. A hackback via breaking into an attacker's system would just, would just show them the TTP or the techniques, uh, tactics, procedures that you're using, potentially co- contributing – to their arsenal. Yes, absolutely. And here he says as well, imagine giving them a zero-day exploit that you have been sitting on for hackback operations or purposes. That is extremely important. If you are an agency and you're tasked with hacking back, quote-unquote, uh, a target system that um, is, is under the control of an attacker, well, what if the attacker knows you're likely going to attack them back and they set up a honeypot? The attacker is now listening and waiting for incoming attacks from said agency. They have packet captures. They have payloads. Now the attacker could absorb or ingest that new technique, that new exploit, and use it for their own engagements. So, yes, this is a very real concern. Attackers could set up a honeypot just like a good guy can. So this is definitely a realistic approach, and I guarantee you it's at least happened at least once. So, yeah, Christoph has a few other points, but, you know, we kind of have to get move on to the next one. But, you know, sure. his b- big point here is hackback is not defense. A hundred percent agree with you um, yeah. that hackback is not a defense. Um, you know, right. you can't just say that I have, you know, if you do something to me, I'm going to attack you. That's offensive. Um, go, mm-hmm. You know, a hackback is an offensive move. Uh, it, you know, in the United States right now it is a crime. Uh, so, you know, neither Hector or I will ever, uh, you know, support hackbacks, uh, you know, in the current state, um, oh, yeah. you know, Naxo has been approached about, you know, doing offensive things like a hackback. There's yeah. no way we would ever do it. We always would turn that down. 
So we, we wouldn't want to even have them as a client, people that are asking us to well, you know, commit a crime. So Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely not worth it, especially if you're on the business side, especially if you're a security researcher. You know, yeah. I understand it out there in the industry. I'm sure it's been hard for folks to get jobs or even their foot in the door. And yeah, you're sitting there, you're listening to this podcast, you have a ton of talent and skills. You just can't get a job right now. Please, in the event someone approaches you and say, hey, I think, you know, I'm a victim of these guys. I need to hack the website. No, that's okay. I'm good. You know, I, you know, I would rather you guys look at bug bounties or even reach out to me and see if they have an opportunity somewhere rather than you going out and, and breaking the law because someone thinks that a hackback is legitimate. It is not legitimate. It's not legal, at least not in this country. And, uh, you know, just, just stay focused and, and kind of steer clear away from that. Um, big shout out to Christoph. He yeah. brought us some very good points, 100%. Very good points, well thought out, and thanks for challenging us, Christoph. Send, you know, if I love we cover it. a story that, that you want to hear more about or you want to get your points across, you know, and it's well thought out and well organized like Christoph did in his email, send it over our way. We're more than happy to share with the audience uh, some awesome. of those things. Crystal and Scott, um, that they, uh, they say, thank you for sharing your collective wisdom with us. Your podcast is an important public service. Well, thank you very much, Crystal and Scott. Um, there's so much misinformation out there. Thank you for speaking out of the truth. We listen every Thursday morning. Well, we apologize for last week when it came out on Friday morning. Um, while getting ready for work and for what it's worth, we love the banter. Well, Hector and I love having the banter. Well, anyways, Crystal and Scott is putting together an indoor rock climbing gym uh, that encourages fitness, fun, and inclusion throughout their community. Um, the location is a tourist destination that has little for the local residents. So they're looking to provide the community center with free membership for locals with the operation costs coming from the 4 million annual tourists. We are not using a traditional crowdfunding site because they take such a large percentage. So we have simply selling advanced tickets at a discount through Squarespace with Stripe as the payment processor. And their goal is $20 million. What they want to know, Hector, is how would a business startup that is trying to raise a lot of money prevent attacks such as Man in the Middle? And if we do collect a large sum of money, what do they do to protect against attackers that want to go after them? Yeah, this is a great question. Big shout out to Crystal and Scott for kind of just, just reaching out. I'm really happy that you guys are listening. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to your indoor rock climbing gym. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely come by and at the very least just, you know, stand around and look around. <laughs> I don't think I could, I don't think I could climb rocks. At least I don't yet. think you and I are walk, climbing a rock wall. <laughs> I don't think so. But yes, this is a great question. This, this is on financial security, you know, or, or, uh, the technology behind it. Um, you know, we saw recently when certain banks went down, without mentioning the name, certain banks went down for various reasons. Uh, doesn't matter what the reason was, but they had issues. Um, some people lost money. So, uh, most didn't. Because you had the government come in, you had other bank, bigger banks come in and also buy out these banks, these smaller banks. Um, the folks that had the, probably the worst uh, inconvenience out of it were the folks that probably lost some money. Others um, were on pause because the, uh, you know, the FDIC and, and the U.S. government and, and the bigger banks had to kind of figure out how to deal with you know, some of the issues that these smaller banks were having uh, or dealing with and how to resolve those issues. Okay. Now, yes, that's tough. And yes, it's true. That when you sign up with a bank, you know, the FDIC, at least here in the United States, I'm sure it's different in other countries, will insure uh, up to 250000 Now, if you have $20 million in the bank, Chris, I mean, at that point, um, it, it, you know, it, it, I would go as far to say that the majority of the money you have in your bank account is, is not insured. 
uh, and you would hope that it's not lost along the way, right? Now, with that being said, there's a couple of things that you're doing that I like. I like that you know you have your website to Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace is solid. I like that you're using a payment processor like Stripe rather than setting up your own payment processor, rather than you setting up your own plugin on your web app to collect credit cards. The one thing you don't want to do is store that information. Now, if you have a, a solid connection between your payment processor and your banking, then I think you're doing a, a good job as well. Now, let's look at the attack surface. The attack surface you have right now is you have a business. Let's forget about the physical. Let's go about the digital. You have a scenario where an attacker may target your Stripe account. So you want to make sure you have MFA. You want to make sure that um, you have some sort of awareness and training and, and dealing with phishing and, and SMS campaigns. Um, you also want to be able to make sure that only you can access that Stripe account. And you also want to make sure that you have secondary support passwords anywhere with any of these services. Because your business is um, very important to you. You want to make sure that you know you have all the tools in place to help you mitigate an attack. Um, but now, remember, if an attacker is able to compromise your Stripe account, they may be able to change your banking details. Right? Assuming that there's no secondary support or, or other security mechanisms to kind of mitigate that. Okay, cool. Um, now let's talk about your bank security, right? If you're going with something like a, a JP Morgan Chase, you know, at that point you're reliant on JP Morgan's security, the same way you're reliant on Stripe security to safeguard your financials. Okay. Is there anything else you could do with your Chase account or your JP Morgan account to make sure that an attacker cannot log in? Yeah, the same thing, the same steps we discussed for Stripe, you're gonna apply to Chase. You want to make sure that there's no way or there's very little way for an attacker to pretend to be you or to log into your account and start moving things around. All of these security features need to be every time. None of this, remember my browser, remember my computer. Every single time, every one of these security features has to be enacted. I know it's a pain in the ass, but if you're protecting $20 million of you know your business money, um, think of, you know, even if it's $20,000, you know, you don't want that to be lost, um, you know. Every single time you log in, that second factor should be part of the login process. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fantastic. You know, and, and I, I think it's a great question because, you know, when you're thinking about security, and we're talking about security, we're usually talking about like, well, from the, from the personal perspective, right? Sometimes we'll discuss the organization security, and, and that's very important as well. But I think it's one of the first questions I've gotten about, well, how do I safeguard my bank details and my, my organization's, uh, you know, uh, banking technologies. That $20 million doesn't have to sit in the same uh, same place. You know, once exactly. it comes in through the processor and goes into your account, it can be distributed to other banks. It can be kind of spread out, uh, you know, to have security across. But again, the same logins, you know, use different passwords, um, two-factor in all these accounts, um, even set up rules with the bank where you have to have a, a verification uh, call with a secure password that only you know in order to change anything on that account. Totally agree. A lot of good questions this week, Hector. You know, stories a little bit lacking in cybersecurity. Hopefully, they'll pick up after the holiday. But again, the listeners really picked it up here and sent in some good questions at questions at hackerinthefed.com. New episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe where you get your podcasts. Uh, hopefully, you're going to go out and see some fireworks tonight, Hector. Hopefully, oh, you'll yeah. go out and blow up your, 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 your blow something <laughs> off of you or whatever it is. I try not uh, to. Yeah, be fun, uh, be safe. Uh, and I will talk to you next week, friend. Awesome. Thank you, my uh, friend. Cheers. Cheers. Later.